Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, we're listening to a conversation between Nathan Schneider and Sarah Horowitz that was recorded on May 20th. This conversation covers mutualist infrastructure. We explored strategies for bringing the mutualist tradition of unions, cooperatives, and community ownership from the margins into the center of economic policymaking. We hope that you enjoy. Sarah Horowitz is the founder of the Freelancers Union and the Freelancers Insurance Company and currently head of the Mutualist Society. She's formerly chair of the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and a recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, uh, the Genius Grants, that ha- and has been featured in NPR, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, lots of other places. Um, and she lives in Brooklyn, New York. Now, I, I've personally been a, a beneficiary of of her work as a freelancer for many years when I was working as a, as a journalist, the freelancers union was how I got my health insurance. And it was um, by far at the time, this was before the Affordable Care Act, the most affordable option uh, available to someone in that kind of position. Uh, later, I, I uh, got to benefit from the freelancers union uh, a medical center that was based in downtown uh, Brooklyn. And, and it was really the first time it felt like I was in a, a medical environment that um, that put people first, and it was a really exciting thing to see. Um, at the same time, that uh, that work has run into challenges with with politics, uh, the the legal underpinnings of the freelancers' unions' insurance model uh, was was uh, changed under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and some of the proposals to develop and the, the goals, the visions of developing nationwide um, cooperative insurance pools uh, uh, ran aground in ways that echo things that have happened for generations. I, I think of, for instance, um, in 1931, when Michael Shadid, a, a Lebanese Syrian immigrant, attempted to create the first co-op- cooperative hospital in Oklahoma. Um, he came under such intense fire from the American medical establishment. And so Sarah's part of this long legacy of people trying to build you know, democracy into our, um, uh, into our, our, our social structures. Um, you know, there are a lot of parallels between where we are right now and that period, the New Deal period. We're in a moment of deep economic and cultural challenges. Those challenges are very unequally distributed. Um, but at the same time, the New Deal moment challenges us. Are we being um, creative in the ways that often people were in that time? Um, and uh, are we seeing a kind of ambition that um, that we could have? As a result of the New Deal programs, for instance, um, we got the basic architecture for uh, the, the extent to which we have a cooperative uh, economy in the United States through agricultural co-ops, electric uh, cooperatives in rural communities, credit unions, um, as well as the, um, uh, the, the structure for labor, labor unions. Um, today, I wonder whether this moment will um, be also a moment for a new awakening and a new vision 
for um, uh, uh, for mutualist uh, 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 strategies and and policies. One thing that I'm really excited about seeing is that today. Um, the uh, one of the senators, our new senator from the state of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, just introduced a new bill called the Cooperative or Capital for Cooperatives Act, which uh, expands access uh, for cooperatives uh, uh, through the Small Business Administration to um, be able to, to to benefit from loans through through that um, through that system, and and that's you know one step. But uh, in this conversation, I want to. Um, to think about what mutualism can look like in the context of the challenges that we face today uh, in the wake and in the in the middle of, of a pandemic still and it's and the economy it's created, as well as a new administration that has explicitly styled itself as a kind of successor to um, uh, to the New Deal period. So um, Sarah Horowitz, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Oh, what a complete pleasure and thank you. What a really nice job you did contextualizing. Well, I'd like to bring you into that context. I'd love to hear, um, first of all, how you think about this moment that we're in, in relationship to to the New Deal mo moment. Your, your uh, book is so historically grounded. Um, how do you see the parallels? Where do you see the departures? Um, and, and where does this idea of mutualism fit in between these these two moments? Yeah, God, that that is such like a rich a rich question. So let's just try and unpack it and get to it in a bunch of different ways. So I'm just going to kind of start at the heart of your question and then let's explore. So you know what I really think is that if we want to see the mutualist sector, and we'll get into what is that thrive we have to have an activist government that wants to make it thrive. And that is a, an evolution in our progressive politics. So we can't think that this is sort of a libertarian strategy where we will just figure this out without government. We need to start to think about that. So let me just say this. I think of mutualism as very typically coming from, as you said, cooperatives, unions, mutual aid groups and the faith community. And when you look at it as a sector, it's not like charming or quaint. It's like a trillion dollar part of our economy. And it has a very interesting and different philosophy from just everything coming from government. And I think that's really where we're saying we have to take a different approach for an activist government. If we think everything everything comes from government, that's good, we will miss this moment. But if we think that there's no role from government, we will miss this moment too. And that's why I think we've got to start to have a disciplined approach about we need to build this sector with every tool we have. And just so we have a, a clear sense of what you mean by mutualism, can you can you talk us through a little bit about what mutualism means in, in daily life, how it shifts uh, how a person might walk through the economy um, day to day. What does mutualism yeah. mean in, in, our, in our lives? Yeah, so, you know, let's all, all of us on, on this Zoom together, just take a moment and think about our lives. So mutualism has three principles and I'm gonna run through them and then we're gonna do an exercise collectively, even though we can't be in a room together at the moment. 
So there's three principles. First is there's got to be a community that we care about that has common needs or interests and we build from that community. The second is that there's an economic mechanism, whether that's dues, subscription, tithing, some time obligation. We have to have a way that we have exchange. And the third is that we have a long-term time horizon. We are not short-term actors. So then you say, okay, well, those three principles, well, that undergirds unions, cooperatives, mutual aid, and the faith communities. And so now let's do this exercise together. Imagine you walked into the post office. Well, everybody that works in the post office is unionized. You drop your kids off at school, tend to be unionized. And depending on what neighborhood or where you live, grocery store workers, credit unions, faith communities. So now if you close your eyes, you just literally imagine what your local community looks like. You actually see that hidden in plain sight is mutualism everywhere around you. And then when you start to look at why does that matter? Because it turns out that the places that have the highest degree of co-ops and unions tend to be the places you wanna live in. And when we go into this further, you start to see that because this is built from the ground up, as you were talking about the medical practice at freelancers, when it's architected around human beings, it literally starts to feel different. And it has huge economic implications, but both economic and human. Thank you for that. And, and another component of this legacy I want to bring in just as we lay the groundwork here is that a major shortcoming of the New Deal, you know, I mentioned earlier a lot of the achievements of it, was that a lot of these legislative uh, achievements came at the cost of excluding people of color uh, from redlining and real estate to barring farm workers and domestic workers from unions. Um, how can the new mutualism do differently, um, recenter its focus, uh, particularly in the age of Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I mean, also just to add another major exclusion, of course, we're independent contractors. And so uh, really it was a focus on the industrial workforce at the time. And I think that let's, let's look at this really broadly and then think about it. I think a lot of times people forget one of the major forces of support of black and brown people in America were the industrial unions. So as you had black migration from the South to the North, you had the auto workers, the rubber workers, those were the CIO unions that were integrated. And actually that's what I think we have to start to see is like the, the promise and the, and the challenge. But I think what we really have to start to talk about when we are really trying to get at this is a notion of self-determination that what we really have to do is make it so that people have the utmost control over their lives and their communities in the communities, how they define it. And I think that's something that sometimes people have a hard time getting their heads around that people need to be able to have a degree of self-organization and self-management. And that really is different than we're just going to have a big government plan that's going to be implemented. And so what I really believe and have seen, and I think you can look particularly at the history of the black church and the civil rights movement is you will have so much more self-determination and control and from that power when people actually control the organizations that they're a part of. 
And then I think to the question and the real issue of discrimination, we already have an apparatus in city, state, and local governments to prosecute, and that wouldn't go away. So really what you see is that the, the real challenge is how do we build up these organizations around need? And the need are for food, clothing, housing, and, and it's how we meet that need that is the difference. And I think that's where you see those differences. Good, thank you. Now with, with that groundwork, let's, let's turn to an agenda. Uh, so right now we're in the middle of a moment where uh, the Biden administration has put out an initial infrastructure plan as well as a, a families uh, plan. And so it's starting to get broken up and turned into compromise and and mm -hmm. uh, and and distracted from by all the things happening in the world. Um, what would uh, mutualist infrastructure look like? What what can a mutualist do to intervene into this moment and um, shift some of the assumptions and, and strategies that are going into how the, the kind of dominant conversation about infrastructure is happening right now? So I want to try something first, and then we're going to get to that. You ready? I think that, you know, let me just say by training, you know, I, I come from a labor family. My grandfather is vice president of the Ladies Garment Workers Union. My grandmother was in union housing. I studied labor at the ILR school at Cornell, the labor school. And you know what I learned? I went and I have a public policy degree. And when I would talk to people who are interested in government policy, that it was always like, there's a problem. You know, you kind of hire like the McKinsey type firms to analyze what the problem is. They're very smart and they're expert and they'll tell you what it is and then they'll implement it and they'll give voice by having people around the table we'll take down what they said. And if it gets in, that gets in. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I never understood what those people were talking about, because I always thought whenever there's a problem, the community should organize around that and have an institution for when the next set of problems come around and learn from past generations and pass those to the next generations. So I think that what we really have to do is say something happened. I call it the Reagan lobotomy. Like there's been like 30 years where we didn't have one generation get to pass it to the next generation. And so part of why I've really tried to talk about history is to give people some context. So why am I saying that in response to your question? And it's because of this. What we really have to do is get serious about rebuilding our own institutions. We do not have them. The insurrection showed us our democracy is in danger because our democracy demands independent organizations, independent co-ops, independent unions. It's not just for our own sake, it's for all of our sake. And so when we have to build infrastructure, we have to look at it at a bunch of different levels. Number one, let's just get started. And so what you find, if you're in the venture capital world, of course, or the startup world, they cut it down, right? Bunch of people have startups, they know where to go to the earliest funders, investors, then they're the next level of investors. And every part of that pipeline has kind of appropriate capital for huge returns. And what we have to see is we don't have that. So the first thing is, let's start to think about the Echoing Greens and Ashokas and the really early stage investors. And let's replicate those or build on those so we start to build a whole generation of early stage community leaders who are focused. 
Then let's look at that mezzanine stage. So I think it's really wonderful that we have this bill for capital because what you see is when you look at the agricultural cooperatives, the rural electrical co-ops, they all have these pipelines. So we have to really get serious and say, we might need expansion capital. In fact, we know we do because there is no expansion capital for social enterprises that are not gonna have significant returns. So that's that. But let's look at it across. And then we need to start to say, there are technical service providers, and we need to start looking at the tax code. Let's make it that if you contribute to a mutualist organization, it's 100% tax deductible, just like the nonprofit sector. So then you could have foundations and endowments starting to see a capital pool. And that's what we have to start to do, is look at the capital, but also have that pipeline ready. That's how you build mutualist infrastructure. Great. And, and that, that capital focus is so important because some, you know, it often leads where, uh, you know, other kinds of support then follow. Um, and, and I think it, it begins with the recognition of how uh, disadvantaged these kinds of, um, these kinds of models are in the current environment. Um, I, I take a lot of inspiration from, from Lewis Kelso, who was the inventor of the employee stock ownership plan, who was, you know, also uh, a graduate of my institution. And, and um, when he got from, you know, Dust Bowl, Colorado to, um, uh, to the, um, to California, where he became a corporate lawyer, uh, he started to realize, hey, wait a second, these rich people can do all sorts of things that the rest of us can't. And they don't put up their own money to do it. They, they borrow money. They have access to financing that groups of people can't access. And that's where the idea of the employee stock ownership plan came from, was a, 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 a creating one pocket of capital access for a, group, a particular kind of group of people, which is employees and a company. Um, but but it just points out all the ways in which so many um, so many other groups of people, whether it's you know people in a in a neighborhood with without broadband internet access or um, people who are uh, again employees in other kinds of companies uh, that just could buy their company that could set up their own uh, broadband company, but they just can't access capital, so they have to wait for rich people to come along and do it. Yes. Uh, and we need to identify those choke points that prevent groups of people and, from doing reasonable things. And you know, when you look at like the wonderful institutions, they have a way of starting to be the anchors for a lot of other activities. You know, when I started Freelancers Union, you know, we were in somebody's office that we got below rent. And I kind of had a management coach, but we didn't really call it that because I just went over to complain when I was trying to figure something out or whatever. You know, so what because we don't have the first stage pipeline ready, it doesn't make it so that when somebody has a great broadband idea, there should be three people that locally you could go to to say, what do you think? Who do you know? How should I do that? So that you start to see a kind of effect. But I, I really agree with you. I mean, I really think that there is something if we want to start to solve some really serious problems in communities that are really challenged, whether they're really low wage or poor or challenged for whatever reason, we're going to have to start to enable people to come together as they have smart and clever ideas to make those actionable and the ones that start having some traction should be able to expand. And that's the other thing I love about mutualism. It rewards excellence. 
you know, if, if you are doing something and you're not doing a great job, like, okay. And the groups that are can really expand. And so that's okay because you're starting to build it out of communities and then making sure they're excellent. You are listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're listening to a conversation about the possibilities of enabling a new commitment to a democratic economy with Nathan Schneider and Sarah Horowitz. I wonder how you see the the political strategy here. I mean, the the way that our mutualist financing system has worked so far is it's been piecemeal, right? So there's a hundred thirty billion dollar cooperative bank here in Colorado, CoBank, but it's just for agriculture, right? Yes. Because it was carved out that way. Credit unions are have to stay within their their field of of membership. It's called. They can't really compete with with other banks, uh, and uh, and and you know the and electric co-ops have access to a capital pool from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but community solar arrays can't access that because they don't fit what it was designed for in the 1930s. Capitalists don't have this problem. When something gets done for capitalists, it doesn't it doesn't limit them to a particular field or some stuff like that. I and it makes me wonder about what kind of political strategy we need to have something as broad as as the mutualist vision. You know. Kelso, who I mentioned earlier in advancing the ESOP, was kind of a technocrat. He was an expert, um, experimenting as an expert, uh, approaching um, uh, uh, political leaders directly because he walked in these elite circles. He eventually got a senator on board to, you know, to let him get away with this. It was not something that any movement had to support him with. On the other hand, in the 30s, a lot of the uh, the the shifts, uh, especially around labor, you know, this was a compromise and an attempt to get a very very radical, very very disruptive wildcat labor movement, um, you know, off the back of industry, and uh, and it it was a popular movement that that pushed the kinds of uh, the the kinds of gains and compromises that occurred in that period. When you talk, when you think about mutualist political strategy, is it something that can be done, um, you know? within a few conversations among experts um, without tangling with the polarized moment that we're in? Or is it something where we need a kind of overwhelming um, popular movement to achieve? Yeah, so first of all, I would really start with, I think it's Gramscian, you know? I think it's a cultural change first. And I think we have to hold ourselves responsible for the culture that we have, which is like the culture of critique. You know, it is just, you know, there are just so many wonderful ways that you can go on Twitter or whatever to like with no skin in the game, just say what you don't like. And what I think we have to start to do is start to evolve to be a culture of builders and to and to say it is our responsibility to start to build the institutions that we need. And as we build those institutions, that in effect becomes the political base. And that just like we realize the challenges of the 10x return as this is not, you know, with all due respect to impact investing, it is not true that you can have 10x and achieve maximum social returns. That is just not true. And so what we have to do is say, this is going to take us a bit of time. We're in it for our generation and the generations that come after us and that obligation. 
and that we're going to start to build in our communities and make that our base. And I think once we do that, we're going to start to see very strange new allies we never thought of, because I think that when you go and look at the red agricultural states who have a very long history of cooperativism, they have a lot of values around self-help and independence that we can actually find ways to break bread with. But we can also start to talk about the fairness and equity that has to be part of this evolution. And I think that once we start from the base where we have those similarities, I do think we're going to start to get out of this 50, 49, 51 political moment. But I think the first step is we have to build our collectives. We have to take responsibility. We have to own it. We have to be builders and eyes on the prize for that. Yeah, thank you. And and that's such an important um, thing that carries over also from the New Deal period. I mean, the the first credit union in the U.S. was in 1909, and you know, and and a lot of the the agricultural cooperative developments of that period were the result of struggles that began in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, these were all the results of processes of experimentation. You know, FDR believed in electric co-ops because when he was governor of New York, he had seen farmers experimenting with them and seen that it can work. Uh, so, so you know, the the it really isn't an either or choice between policy and, and no. experimentation. You know, they really this, feed each other. The civil rights movement. You know, when you look at the freed slaves and people who were slaves had no banks and created their own banks their own benevolent associations for burial, their own churches, typically the AME Zion Church. These became the stops on the Underground Railroad. Professor uh, Jessica Gordon-Nembars in Collective Courage has written about this beautifully. But A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, child of AME Zion religious leaders, integrated the AFL-CIO and the military and became the architect for the March on Washington. Talk about passing the baton from generation to generation. And I think as we think about climate change, you know, we, we have to start to build these because actually what we're really doing is transforming the economy. We're all kind of taking a deep breath and admitting we can't have a 2% growth rate. We can't use resources the way we did. We can't, we have to have racial equity and the only ways we're going to do this is if we build our own institutions around people first. And that really is the job that we all have to do. Yeah, what, what you say about generations reminds me of, um, you know, something I heard over and over visiting co-ops in Italy was this idea that we're building this for our members and for future generations. In the yeah. U.S., you talk to co-ops, you know, we're we're here to serve our members. You know, that idea of future generations is never, is, is not quite so much a part of, of how we so think about this thing, into, They have something that, you know, if someone here is the expert on it, you know, I, I know it from studying it as much as I can, but it's almost incomprehensible to an American, but it's called indivisible reserves. And it's like, they're literally sharing the reserves to backstop their companies that then pass on to the next generations. And so, you know, it's kind of insane the way we've pushed the individual to the absolute, the planet and the individual to the absolute limit. And mutualism is the only way that we're going to have a plan to get back. And when I say mutualism, really, again, to your first, your first point, 
It really is recognizing mutualism, you know, it's in biology, Proudhon uh, used it first. It is, it is a, a term that is really out there, but it's really about reciprocity and really having an action plan. So we don't have to figure this out. People have figured out how to build these institutions since the beginning of, of time. It's that we start to see them as a sector, start to see that the capital pools are important and that seeing that we're at a moment where building locally actually is where the revolution is gonna happen, you know? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and, and you know, Italy is a country that, for instance, after the, um, uh, the experience with fascism in, included the right to cooperation in its constitution. Um, you know, we have a lot of history of, of mutualism in the U.S., but we don't think of it as a kind of core civic virtue and, and as a core uh, piece of infrastructure for our civic lives and our economic lives. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting how in a context like Italy, they've had to learn to appreciate it because they saw it, uh, yeah. uh, saw what fascists want to do with these kinds of models. Um, to concretize some of some of this building, I, I'd love to hear a bit about your your reflections on um, on, on building the freelancers union, and you know what are you most proud of, and and what might have you done differently? What um, you know what what do you want to what kind of lessons do you want to bring to your you know your future ventures? You know it's it's um, it's really interesting. I think one thing that's really important is as we all find a way to be about something larger than ourselves, whether it's through faith or through contemplation. And I think that one of the things that's really important is that you realize in your life, you are here to run your relay of the marathon. Somebody passes you the baton, you run, and you're gonna pass it to the next. And it's important, I think, to be kind as we analyze those things. And so, you know, I think that the part of the journey on, the, on my role in the relay race for freelancers was to really build this next form of unionism and to show that you could really do it, that labor unions in our country started as craft unions even before were medieval guilds and then guilds and then industrial unions and that this new workforce is really gonna be organized in a different kind of structure and freelancers union still exists. It just celebrated its 25th year it still has an independent model, an economic model. It's still at the forefront of the freelancer um, issues. So I think like that is really important to recognize. That's an institution that we all should be learning from because it's continuing. I think the thing that I really appreciated now is just how hand in glove government is. And we could never have done the things that we did we started a hundred million dollar company. Like it was a hundred million dollars for many years. There's almost a billion dollars altogether. When you have a government that wants it to work, it soars. And then I think that we, you know, when you were just talking about the politics around the co-ops, the, the ESOPs, it's so interesting how the different movements need to unify sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's, those are some of the major things, but I think what now, anytime you start to build something like a freelancer's union, 
you get to get to one level of the mountaintop and look at the vista next. And I think it really is about building mutualism, starting to find a way to unify these movements together so that we start to be more in tandem around the things that we all need. That then goes to build really a much more robust economic and political base. And that's why I built the Mutualist Society. And if people want to find out more, they can go to build-mutualism.net and um, and continue the conversation. But I think it really is about starting to have these cross-sectoral strategies so we unify more. And I think that's really important. Now, one of the kind of big features of the of this last couple of decades uh, around these questions that you've been working on is that of um, the classification of workers, right? You're working with this concept of, of freelancers, um, we also see um, certain uh, uh, kind of language around mutualism uh, used by big sharing economy com companies and uh, Uber and Airbnb and so forth. And you know, the freelancers union has had a has had a relationship with some of these companies. Um, I'm curious where you are right now on the questions of potential misclassification on. Prop 22 in California and the kind of massive uh, corporate efforts to protect uh, access to a certain kind of uh, labor arrangement. What What is the relationship between the, the sharing economy we have uh, and uh, the you know, so-called sharing economy and the mutualist vision? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we have to start being clear about the goal. And the goal is for workers and citizens to have the most security possible. I think that's really what we're talking about. I think that we're getting to a, a place um, happily with the Biden administration where we're starting to get some clarity about what what's really happening here. And for me, just watching um, where we are, I would say I'm coming to this conclusion. I always knew, as I think we all did, that there really are freelancers who are really freelancers. And in many ways, what I learned from freelancers was about this 360 life, that they actually figured out something in a capitalist system about control of their own time. And that was so important. It's what workers have been trying to get from time immemorial. And so to me, they are the vanguard. They really have the way of showing us so much. And then there are the platform companies that really have a workforce that really are employees for the most part, many of them. And we started to confuse these because it became a media term generated mostly from industry. And so what we really have to do is say, wait, we're taking a step back. Let's get it so we build a safety net for the people who really are employees. And let's make sure that the people who really want to be freelancers have the ability to build a safety net for themselves that is collective and mutualistic. And I actually think in the middle of this fight, we're actually getting clarity that that is what we are talking about. In the larger context, I think this all grew in a very neoliberal way where companies were realizing how people needed security and they were kind of creaming different strategies where they could make serious returns for driving, delivering, and other things. And I think what we really have to do is go back to say, wait a minute, we are builders, this is what we need. The 
people are starting driving cooperatives. You know, we're seeing this all over the country. That's the first step. And the next step is to start to have a political agenda around capital and growing. So I do think that's important. And I think around the workforce, truly, I think we have to allow workers to unionize in whatever ways they are doing. We should listen to what workers want. If they're independent contractors who like being independent contractors, they should be allowed to build their own unions. And the platforms are employing people who are employees when they work full time. Those should just be employees. And let's just get some clarity on that. You are listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're listening to a conversation about the possibilities of enabling a new commitment to a democratic economy with Nathan Schneider and Sarah Horowitz. Yeah, I mean, the the claims that this is something new, that there's need for something new, it, you know, were challenged for me by my own transition out of freelancing into the medieval guild of the, the university where um, I became an employee, but I uh, I have this freedom of, you know, use of time. Um, and, and it was a reminder that, you know, th- these questions are old and that there are a lot of repertoires that we can we can turn to on them. Um, but there, you know, there are some kind of crucial um, uh, struggles going on now, where where these companies are are holding up this claim. Even you know, a challenge for me as someone who's been advocating shared ownership for a long time is now Uber and Airbnb are um, have been asking the SEC to allow them to share ownership with their uh, with their with their users with their kind of core. Uh, users and and on the one hand that's exciting it might be a step in that in that direction but on the other hand they're using they're also using a ton of money to prevent unionization efforts and to um, and to you know to to prevent the kind of organizing that could threaten you know I some mean, of their I interests. Think Google Foundation is a perfect point. They're fighting tooth and nail for the alphabet workers to unionize with the Communication Workers of America and then giving giant grants in the co-op space. You know, so I think that would be nice if the co-op people started supporting CWA um, because that's really important. And I think that what, but let, let's take a step back, you know. Well, you're talking oh, to a CWA member. So. Um, CWA, by the way, Communication Workers of America started out as a company union in the 1930s, has become a very strong and radical union. So it really shows you that you can start whichever way you just have to get started. And I really think that's what we're talking about. There's always going to be, you know, yay, that these companies are feeling this pressure to be moving in the right direction. And so you want to recognize that that's a good thing. And at the same time, what we really want to say, though, is where we are builders, what we want to focus on is how do we build our own institutions? So let's also talk to Uber and Airbnb about being the first companies that contribute to the cap of the co-op co-op bill that just got started that if they really want to support it let's see them support that legislation and let's really start to see how we can get this building orientation going and that's what i think we want to start doing is like let's just take a step back when we hear something take a deep breath 
focus on eyes on the prize. Let's start building our own institutions, having our own base, our own leaders, our own agenda, and then we can start to get involved. Sometimes I think we jump in to the fight and that prevents us from building first. And that we are at that moment. It is really truly that moment to start to build now. Is there, is there anything that you think progressive politics lately is getting wrong that mutualism can help correct? Is there is there something that 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 a lot of people are seeing backwards? Yes, there are two things. So one is, I think if let's say you were a mutualist mayor or somebody who really cared about the view of a region geographically, the first thing you have to do is map the mutualists. Where are they? Then you have to go and talk to them. What do you need? Then you have to make their agenda your agenda. It, that's where it has to go. It isn't because you hired McKinsey and Bain and you figured out this beautiful thing and it's really complicated. Talk to people and get started where they are. So I think of it as look down, don't look up and find those people. But the second thing is, I really think that our empathy is at an all time low. And I really, I really think social media does this to us. And we have some notion that like all wealthy people are tremendously privileged and have everything to give and all poor people are the opposite and have nothing. And I find that to be so offensive because as somebody who's organized workers and spent my life in the labor movement, Everybody has power and magic, and you have the second we forget that it is condescending. It is it is not human. It is not about love. And I think we really have to change again this culture and start to say we have to engage in reciprocity. And that's different from having an analysis about COVID and health outcomes and racism, all of which are legitimate and real criticisms. But we should never, for an instant give up this notion that people have something to give. And this this thing about privilege, the way we're talking about it, is starting to really worry me. How is that? <laughs> because I, I think that you you can't you have to realize that that people have love and power and capacity. And what mutualism is is about unlocking that. And it's not just an abstract thing. If you are poor and you or become, you start a job in the post office, in whatever industry or a worker co-op, you suddenly immediately learn these skills. How do I set an agenda? How do I run a meeting? How do I have people to learn from? It's a pipeline up. And that's why mutualism is important because it lets human beings in their capacity to love have a way to start to join something and to learn and grow and pass something to the next generation. That's how you unlock power. It's not because you just decide who, you know, is the group or person or whatever to hate, de jour, de week, de whatever. It, it, this is not, this is not, this, you know what this does? It sells a lot of newspapers and media outlets and algorithms get people to click, but it doesn't build a better society. Thank you for that. And and you know, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of the the scenes in the um, the new film uh, Judas and the Black Messiah about Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader, um, and the, the the moments where he's trying to build solidarity uh, with with uh, you know working class white groups and and Latino groups and and trying to and doing it on the basis of shared interest uh, rather than on a sense that 
you know, you, you owe us deference or there is, or, or you know, you, you, you are standing in privilege. It was all about building connections. Um, you know, I think there's, there's truth on all these sides, but, but that kind of fundamental organizing instinct, I think is so, so powerful. And we have uh, some questions here um, from Michael and Emily about bringing um, young people and bringing new new people into the into the kind of mutualist culture uh, that you were talking about. I wonder maybe this is a chance to say more about uh, the mutualist society and what you're going to be working on, what you're working on now. Um, but how do we help bring up this this new uh, generation of mutualists? Yeah, you know, first of all, it's a great question. So thank you, you all. The other ones were great too. Um, let me just say this. You know what's funny when you think about like mutualism? If you don't believe me, ask Silicon Valley, right? Facebook, not exactly the leader of mutualism, is um, all about Facebook groups. Uh, Google has Google groups. Substack has started their newsletter because they're looking at how people are naturally organizing. And so I almost feel like what we need to do is like take those back and start to like get on the Facebook groups and say, hey, do you notice that there's nothing mutualist? Like if Facebook really wanted you to be a mutualist, they'd be like, time now to start thinking about leaders. Is there any way we can all get together and put a little bit of money in and start a cause? hey, let's start sharing our own data. Like that's not coming at a notification from, from them. But we can start to do that. Get off those platforms that aren't about real mutualism. Go to Circle.io, Mighty Network, create your own. Please enter ones that I'm not saying. I have no interest in any of those in particular. But I think that young people actually are organically mutualists. Look at all the mutual aid groups that cropped up in the last year. And I think the first thing is, let's go back to the three principles. Gather your group. Anybody in the group, it's open but it's about a group and a community. Find your community and find a way, whether it's a spreadsheet or a horrible Facebook group, but to get off it, let's start there. But then open your wallet and ask other people too, even if it's for a first and simple thing like a shared meal, but just try something collective and then start to think about what does the longer term look like? And then break bread, you know, that these are the things that I think from generation to generation, and if really you want to be honest about it, drink. Alcohol and drugs probably help a little bit, but do something collective to enjoy each other. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the there are some really great questions here I want to bring in. Um, another is around... Um, uh, nature and ecosystems. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think there's some curiosity here more about that. I'd, I'd like to add on top of that, you know, other uh, kind of traditions for understanding the broader world wherein religious traditions uh, have often been sites of, of mutualist connections and, and practice. Um, where do you see our vision of the world around us as playing a part in this movement? Yeah, yeah. So first, let me just say, I think that's another cultural change that we need to reclaim our faith institutions because they are the ones who have passed the baton from one generation to the other. Again, flawed institutions, but there is something about the ability to come together. They typically are the place that has the edifice to start having meetings, people who understand what a social purpose is, grown-ups who manage a budget. 
so that there's something so important about that. But I really do want to talk about the, you know, the earth. I, I really like these ideas that come out of eco-psychology of recognizing the importance of human beings as the as not the center of this equation from an industrial perspective, but realizing that we can start to look at new ways, not really new, traditional ways of farming, of ways of food gathering, imagining nature around us, seeing the importance of nature, not just to us, but to other beings, and to start to see that in the context of climate change. And mutualism is completely about that because it is about human beings as they exist in the, in the world. And so the mutualist society, what I'm convinced is that this is about the early adopters, the people who just get this and resonate. No interest in having fights now because we need to come together to see what we're even about. So if you go to build mutualism, happy to start bringing people together and start to think about like, how do we come together? And why, how do we have a shared way so that people can learn from one another to get started or to realize they're not alone when they're having a hard time raising capital and that we can start to share who has the capital or to start talking to community foundations. But we have to get started, we have to find each other. Thank you for that. And that question was from Alexandra. I just wanna make sure to credit that. Um, we, we have another question um, about resources that assist can assist with development funding, um, but I also I also want to put that in conversation with um, you know with, with how we can build on not just new things but also on old uh, on old patterns and institutions. Um, so one thing I've noticed in working with established cooperatives large credit unions and that sort of thing is that there's often no lateral relationship. You know, you were talking about the kind of natural ties that form on social media platforms. It's almost like some of our established mutual groups are, are afraid of the kind of relationships and, and possibilities that can emerge among their members, even though that was really what gave rise to their institutions in the first place. Um, so, so what kinds of resources, um, both for people looking to start something new uh, or something that, um, or, or building on something that's already there. Would you point people to, at, you know, as an entrepreneur yourself? Sure. I just want to say, it's when you were saying that, it reminded me of a really funny story. So at Freelancers Union, I was like very focused on economic mechanism because to me that was make or break, and I think that was right. And I, there was an old school insurance guy, and he would insist that anybody who was doing work on that project that we would go out and we would eat meals that would last for like an hour and a half and they would like drink at lunch and i always was like this guy is like wasting my time you know and i can barely drink and go back to work you know but man we built the most robust economic machine and we had these intense relationships and so I think one of the things that we don't do, I think this is kind of neoliberalism, tell you the truth. I think people should just start going out and meeting people for breakfast and coffee. Just go as a human being and getting to the resource question, you know, the way I always think of it is people always think you have to start at the top. I think you start where you start. You find like some human being that has a pounding heart and get to them first. And then say, how do I like work within that institution? And by the way, do you have some free space that we could locate when we're just three of us? Sure. Um, 
And then do you know anybody in City Hall? Like, well, I know this one. Like, just start to see that things are a network. The thing I'm really thinking a lot about myself at the Mutualist Society is how do we start to go back to the ways that we were before we thought everything had to start with foundation funding? Like, how do we open our wallet, keep our nuts small, and start to kind of ask our community to, for in-kind or other things to just get started? And then, you know, I do think that there are some resources. I think getting started, really, you can, to some degree, get a little bit of funding. Try Echoing Green, some community foundations. The real hard part, I think, is once you've got something and you stop needing the things that the foundation world wants to give. In other words, when you're like, oh, I'm going to ask the community, and it turns out they need these three things, and those three things are not what the McKinsey people are telling them. That's when almost every mutualist, whether it's in a union or a new labor organization or co-op, that's when they start having capital problems. So I don't have an easy answer for you because I think that really is when the hard part starts. But get started. Finally, I, I want to ask about a question that I always try to ask myself, which is, what what do we mean by by power here, right? I mean, the the, the union movement of the um, uh, of the '30s had a particular vision of power and its ability to disrupt industry, you know, as a source of of power. Um, today, in the context of something like Me Too, we have a, a theory of kind of viral power, that power is the ability to spread a message across a network. Um, you know, you've just been talking about the relationship between financial incentives and, and relationships. Um, how do mutualists think about building power in a world where, where what they're up against are, you know, the largest corporations the world has ever seen, um, these kind of juggernaut um, uh, political institutions that are increasingly drifting into authoritarian tendencies, you know, where we're seeing real struggles over um, the, the levers of our society and economy? How should we think about power? You know, First of all, I think one thing that's really important is to recognize that we have so many different strategies and different people and organizations have different ways of doing things. And I think one of the things I've really learned is just because it's not my way doesn't mean it's not an important way. And so I really believe that. Like, I, I really feel like, you know, when you were asking me, like, what, what things would you would you think differently about I think I'm much more respectful of other people's way. So let me just say like, what I'm saying is what I believe, but that doesn't detract from something that maybe people who are thinking about this and really passionately care about something, like all good. But I would say the real antidote to the hate that's coming toward us right now is love. And I think that when we talk about power, it's as if we like clench our jaw and our shoulders and it puts us into a place where I can assure you like oxygen's just not flowing to the brain. But really actually taking a step back, you know, I'm really working on my shoulders right now, really trying to be about love because love is what's gonna get us together. We are talking about such massive transformation. If we're admitting to ourselves that we're not gonna grow at 2% because it will destroy the planet, boy, that is huge. But like over there, Let's just start building where we are now because we don't have a base. Like we have to be honest, we don't have the base yet. 
We have it in different pockets, but let's just come together and unify and find the things to love about other people. And if it's not your strategy, great, over there, but find each other and start to build. Thank you so much for, for reframing my question. Uh, uh, we've got some some lot of hearts showing up in the, in the chat. Uh, so th thank you for helping us end on that note. Um, this book is extraordinary. It, um, uh, let's see, where was that? Uh, Emily says that Sarah has been reading my diary. Um, when I when I read uh, this book, I thought I wish my diary were were this good. Um, and uh, it, it's a it's a really powerful um, and really accessible vision for um, for how we can you know rethink our our society and economy and and culture. So um, I also want to thank a co-sponsor for this event, uh, Zebras Unite, which is in itself a really, really exciting, awesome mutualist organization in the making. Um, uh, we're, we're developing a, uh, an emerging uh, uh, structure to build in you know, our values into, into how this organization works to help support underrepresented founders build different kinds of companies in different kinds of ways that are oriented around community uh, support and um, and and wealth and and growth. So, um, thank you, Zebras Unite, for for co-sponsoring this. If you're interested in um, in more of these kinds of events, please uh, uh, sign up for the newsletter uh, both at Zebras Unite and uh, the Media Enterprise Design Lab uh, website. So, um, thank you all for for coming and for being part of this conversation. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for for being part of it and for for your leadership. Hello, oh, and thank you. This was really wonderful, and thanks for so many wonderful comments. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been listening to a conversation with Sarah Horowitz. To learn more about Sarah's work, visit freelancersunion.org. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab, you can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would also love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.